You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Do not urge me to leave you. I will not leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. No, this is not the promise of a substitute pastor. (laughs) This is the promise of Ruth. It couldn't be more different than Samson. Now, last week, John put out an announcement before he went on vacation, anticipating Ruth, and I gave you Samson. <laughs> it could not be more opposite. Samson is gregarious, big. He could be a Marvel character. He's absolutely just all about women and defeating Philistines and strength and muscle and took a Nazarene vow, had long hair that was a part of his promise of God, had an absolutely incredibly story-unfolding prophetic uh, announcement of his conception and his birth. It's all big. It's all huge. It's it's just enormous. Ruth? Ruth is quiet. Ruth doesn't even live in Israel. She starts the story in Moab. You're thinking, Moab? I hate Moab. Well, I know. But that's where she's at. That's what she's doing. So we're going to go from Samson, big, gregarious, muscle-bound, you know, like me guy, (laughs) to Ruth, who's quiet, whose husband just died, whose whose father-in-law just died, whose sister's husband just died, in the middle of a country that nobody likes, especially the Israelites, with no apparent hope, no apparent direction, place, or way to go. We're going to talk about Ruth today and how powerfully God is present in the big, the mighty, the powerful, the fantastic, the loud-mouthed, big-voiced Peter and Mary, who's quiet, humble, sullen. How God is present in those who are convinced and will charge forward and move on to the light brigade. And those who are kind of frightened, super quiet, and afraid to take the next step. The beauty I want you to pull out of the message here today of God's word is that God is present and is an operating system as the software, as the hand behind creation, as the hand behind salvation, as the worker of all things for the good of those who love him in every and any circumstance, from the Samsons to the Ruths, from Jesus to the Spirit. It's all present. So I went ahead this week and did Ruth because, well, I missed Ruth the first week and doing that again. And again, John will straighten all that out next week. What I want you to do is I, I, I thought there's probably not a lot of us who've read the book of Ruth. It's really small, and uh, it contains that one scripture, which is probably the most famous, which is, as a pastor for my 38 years, I've probably preached more at sermons than I have for its actual context. It has nothing to do with the wedding, per se, but that's 
still sounds really good at a wedding, even though nothing to do with it. Anyway, so uh, what I wanted to do is start off by showing you a wonderful summary. It's seven minutes, so it's a little bit long, but it's really good, I think, anyway. And I wanted you to have a context and a, a storyline for the book of Ruth that you might understand the nature of how it contrasts with Samson. And the whole point of the message is going to be the presence and power of God from the big and powerful to the small and frightened and grieving. God is at work. Let's watch this summary. The book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. 
And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned. Right, The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life. But not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about.
I might have skipped reading the book of Ruth. Isn't that really well done? Here's the part I like best. In the mundane, in the everyday, God is at work accomplishing his purposes. And I think that's critical and important because there's a lot of room for doubt. There's a lot of room for question. There's a lot of room to kind of look across the, the, the sanctuary at others and go, yeah, but he's got that. She's got that. They did that. They have this story. They have this. And this is all about what looks like apparent failure and death and foreign land, God is hardly mentioned. And at first, I really, well, how am I going to explain that? And I thought, that's, that's perfect. You don't have to mention God for him to be at work. I want you to have a sense of confidence today as you walk out of here, that whether you know it or not, whether you believe in God or not, whether you trust him or not, he's at work for your good. Let's unfold that a bit further. So Ruth, God at work as the operating system of everything. So, uh, so I, I kind of want to use Ruth as a story and an example of an operating system. By the way, uh, these four lovely young ladies here are visiting as my granddaughters. So if you would like to do anything to spoil them while they're here, that'd be, that'd be great. We've been working at doing all that. Their dad is a software engineer. That's really cool except for I really don't know what he does. And I really work at trying to figure that out. I mean, I think, oh, Charlie, tell me what you did at work today. And he'll start, and I got the first 30 seconds. And then I think I understand the next 30 seconds bits and pieces. But by the following second minute, I'm just politely nodding to Charlie, going, That's, tell me more, son. And I have no clue what he's talking about. He's a software engineer that builds the code that instructs Wi-Fi, what to do, I don't know. See, I can't even describe it. The point of that is, it's the operating system. So you don't have to know software like my son Charlie is a software engineer to have a sense of what that is because you look at your phone and your phone has a computer in it and that computer is a, has a software that's operating system, the whole operating system battle between Apple and Android and each uh, different coding and all that. You can't see the code, but the code is working to make a phone call. When Charlie was, he was, started out in the cell phone software something or other, I said, how does a, how does a cell phone transmit a signal like that? And, and everything you say is put into packets and put over the internet and shipped and put, has a number attached to it. Really, all that's going on behind Hello, honey, I'll be home late for dinner. All this software and all this imagery and all this thing. That's the metaphor I want to use for God at work. God is behind the scenes of our lives as the operating system, working his code, his miracles, his magic, his wonder in the midst of grief. Just You can't see him. You can't look at your phone and then see it. So I thought, well, how do I help us understand what that's like? This has helped me. Anybody know what this is? Zeros and ones of, of coding. Anybody know what movie this is from? The Matrix, of course. You knew that. So it's not a really a good example, but it's meant to be illustrative of what God does. He is the code behind, in The Matrix, the movie, if you haven't seen that. See the movie, first of all. But no, if you haven't seen The Matrix... 
it's really about the code that's behind the illusions of life. So it doesn't fit exactly as a working metaphor, but you get the point. Whether we're talking to software engineers or whether we're talking to people who understand the matrix or whether we're talking to those who work a phone, there's an operating system that works behind the whole thing. A set of zeros and ones giving instructions and tuning in exactly what's got to happen. And all you see is a picture on the phone. We've got to start with the Moabites versus the Israelites' bitter history. The reason why the first person there in the uh, Book of Ruth did want to marry the uh, Mary Ruth is because she was a Moabite. You've got to be absolutely disgusted. Now you're thinking to yourself, really, a Moabite? What is she doing in Israel? Right? Why is she here? Uh, part of Joshua's conquering of the Promised Land was the bitter campaign versus the Moabites. It's important to understand that the background of the Book of Ruth has this bitter history of the Moabites who were hated, who were despised. So to make the things a little more interesting, she comes from Moab, Moab. I don't know what that would be like today. I don't know what countries we despise. I would hate to consider them. But the, nonetheless, the Moabites were, were absolutely hated. And so she comes to a foreign country. Her promise to Ruth, don't ask me to leave you. I will go where you go. Stay where you stay. Be, your people will be my people. Your people will be my people is a promise of saying, I will be a Moabite. I'll be an Israelite. It's just unheard of. It was just crazy talk. The Hebrew prophets denounced the Moabites' pride and arrogance. There was this bitter rivalry that was between them. And the Moabite historical writings boast of a slaughter of Israeli towns about 830 B.C. Hundreds of years of battle between the Moabites. That's context. Why is that context? Because God is using that as backdrop for a woman who exits Moab, goes to Israel. And did you catch the end of the story, the real point of the story? She becomes a part of the lineage of the Messiah. Isn't that incredible? From a hated people, despised over centuries, comes the Messiah. I love it. That's in the background happening as well. So you and I have our hatreds, our prejudices, our pride. What I want you to have a sense of confidence of here this morning is that God works through the middle of those, in the midst of those, in spite of those, as though they are irrelevant. He is going to accomplish his work, his word, his way, his way. He has the software. He writes the code. The interplay and contrast of God's will and human decisions. The story of loyalty and faithfulness in the time of Judges is also the second critical piece of the backdrop. About 300 years of moral degeneracy. With, and we learned this phrase last week, if you were here, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. That's the key phrase that keeps resurfacing like a refrain in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And uh, what I said last week, I would repeat this week. It's a good thing that our world isn't like that right now, isn't it? We're much more civil, much more organized, much more unified. Maybe not as a world, but certainly as a country. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Facetiousness is dripping off. <laughs> Everyone did what was right in their own eyes was the backdrop for the Book of Judges. It was horrific. Everybody's fighting for their piece of the pie. Everybody's fighting for their piece of the puzzle. Everybody's trying to make the world look according to their standards and their beliefs and their systems. It was an ugly time. So you got the Moabite thing going on. You got the Book of Judges about 300 years going on. It's an ugly time. Lots of 
derision. In the midst of that, you got the loyalty of Ruth and, Boy, uh, and Bo, uh, Boaz. <laughs> Their trust that God is working it out, even as the degeneracy of the time of judges rages on. Are you wondering where God is at sometimes as you watch the news, as you get up and walk away? As you get another website, you wonder, what are you going to do? When are you going to step up? What's going on in the moral degeneracy of the time? The book of Ruth and the simple story of this woman is here to give you some assurance. God is at work during every era and every time, no matter how morally degenerate, no matter how much they turn away, no matter how much people do what is right in their own eyes, God has the software. God is working his plan. God is working his way. God is working his will. Even if you don't believe in him, know him, or want to mention his name, God is writing the code. I like this cosmological coincidence or God incidence. So the cosmological coincidence of physics is the physics constants. Stephen Hawking has admitted the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers, the constants of physics, seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Okay, first of all, a little bit of background. First of all, those who have heard me preach know I love references to cosmology. I just get all tingly inside. <laughs> it's just an amazing story what God has done in the universe and now that the James Webb Space Telescope is out there discovering more than they ever thought. It's like, wow, I always head for those news articles and read them. This is from a brief history of time from Stephen Hawking, who said, ah, the physics, the constants of physics. This is the constants of physics, or like the, the nature of gravity is the same every place in the universe. It has the same formula. Now, here's the issue that I learned in reading, re reading and rereading some of this stuff from Hawking and others. The pull of gravity is so specific, so finely tuned, so on point that if it were just a fraction and a hair more, worlds would collapse within themselves. If it were just a little bit less, just a little, 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 little bit less, they could never gather. There is this absolute fine line that makes even the almost ardent atheist go, huh, <laughs> huh. What's that? What's that all about? God's writing the code. God is writing the code of the universe, and he's unfolding billions and trillions of stars. Just, just when we think we know stuff, the James Webb Space Telescope pointed its lenses or whatever they are, I think they're mirrors, whatever their instruments are, at the same space that we have from the Hubble Space Telescope. And I just saw an astronomer say, oh, where we used to see stars, we now see galaxies. <laughs> just when we think we know, God says, um, I write the code. Life and relationship coincidence or God incidents. We sang this, and we know that in all things, in all things, really, God, really, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We sang, God works all things together. 
Now that's a nice song to sing. Thank you, musicians, for bringing that to us. And that's a nice scripture to talk. But what if you're struggling with disease, or death, or loss, or pain, or suffering? The Book of Ruth is here to interject. Well, read the Book of Ruth. People in the midst of their grief and sorrow in foreign lands that are hated by the Israelites, not the Moabites, anyone but the Moabs. Even those people are used by God for his purposes and his delight. I want you to have a sense of confidence, a sense of trust, that in the midst of all the things that are going on in your life, and the country, and the nation, the world, God is working together for the good of all those things, and for you. This is what Joseph said after he got thrown into a well and sold off to the Egyptians. As for you, he's speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Huh. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The whole context, we don't need to get too far into it, is Joseph is <clears throat> thrown into a well. He's sold off to the Egyptians. He ends up in jail. He ends up being second in command in Egypt. His brothers come and get him, and he's got all, he does the whole seven years of storing grain and seven years of eating the grain he stored and saves the whole nation and his family. What you intended for harm, Joseph says to you this morning, God worked for good. Because he writes the code, he could take whatever illnesses, issues, difficulties, pain, and suffering is yours and make it work for him. Jesus' operating system to redeem us. The kinsman redeemer is critical to this element. The kinsman redeemer is that there was no social security back in Israel and in Moab time. So a husband who was asked, a kinsman redeemer was asked to become a husband to provide income and protection. Jesus is the operating system to redeem us in the same way a kinsman redeemer does. Cover us, protect us. He began doing this before the foundation of the world. I mentioned this last week. It just fits the context again this week, so we'll skip over quickly. Though before space and time existed, God had a plan, I guess, to make sure that we were brought back, that we were redeemed. He will crush your head, you will bruise his heel. They recognize this, written about 1500 BC. This was from Genesis 3.15, God to the serpent after the fall. This is what's called the first gospel message. It's kind of hidden. It's a little bit veiled. But God is saying, look, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get your head crushed. If you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that is kind of lived out when Jesus gets up from, from praying to the Father and the serpent who's been kind of teasing at him for a while, and Jesus stomps his foot. That's the fulfillment of that. He will crush your head. He will bruise your heel. The gospel message has been present since the fall. The fall happens, the gospel message begins its development immediately. What does this mean? It means God is at work whether you're aware of it or not, whether you believe in him or not. It's not dependent on our beliefs. God is not God's existence and power and might and software writing capabilities, if you'll run with the metaphor aren't dependent on whether we believe or not. He's working, he's living, he's loving. 
Although God allows for sorrows and suffering, he also converts them to the joy of his loving purposes. And I suppose that's probably the hardest part of the message to receive, and that is God still does allow suffering, doesn't he? And we often will be rattled by that, critical by that, concerned by that. And I get that. I am too. And it's one of those unanswered, perhaps unanswerable questions, except to say those are the issues that I brought about. The fall was what I participate in daily by doing what is right in my own eyes. I can't see beyond my own perspective. I'm trapped by my own vision. And that's what's going to kill me. So God allows for sorrows and suffering, but he converts my small, wrong, hard-to-understand perspective into his loving purposes, into his work and his software. From Samson's muscles and heroics to Ruth's quiet loyalty and faithfulness, God is at work in the fantastic and in the mundane, redeeming. God at work as the operating system of everything. Thank you, Ruth. Let's go to God in prayer. Gracious Father and God, we thank you for two incredible characters during this time of Judges. Samson's almost cartoon character-like strength and life and boldness and power. And Ruth, a lonely widow from a foreign country, despised and hated by Israel. And yet in both, you worked your will, you worked your way, you worked your love to show through. We thank you that we're a part of that even yet today. For times we have of unbelief, for times of denial, for times of regret, we turn them over to you that you might make all things work together for the good of those who love you. During times of doubt, during times of trial, during times of struggle, give us a sense of your light and your love and your power and the way you are at work, even despite ourselves. Thank you for the code that you write from the universe to the code in our hearts, from the redemption planned since the book of Genesis to present here today within our hearts and lives in this sanctuary. We have been bought back by the Christ. We have been redeemed. That has been your plan, and we thank you for it. This we pray ever confident you hear always in Jesus' name. Amen.